0: Andy told me uh, we need to get some color in the pulpit, so, <clears throat> and that was all he said. That's how he invited me. And to sweeten the deal, he said, "Freddie, you can preach on anything you want." And I said, "Andy, anything." And he said, "Freddie, anything." So get your seatbelts on. You're ready for a two-hour lecture on the doctrines of grace, A.K.A. Calvinism. So I need you to open your Bibles to Romans nine. Man, look at your neighbor right now and tell him I did not sign up for this. I did not. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I am excited to be here tonight. And the, the Lord put something on my heart uh, to, to bring it back down a little bit. Th- this year has been a little bit tough, NYA family. There, there's been some stuff that has happened in our community, stuff that has happened in Abbotsford over the last number of years that is just hard. And we, we wonder... Where's God in this? What are we supposed to do when our life gets turned upside down? And God didn't leave us empty-handed, didn't leave us alone. He's given us his word, he's given us his spirit. And I want to bring to you a word today out of 1 Peter 3, or 1 Peter 1 3 through 12, which which talks about suffering. That's what we're gonna talk about tonight. It's, it's gonna to be a little bit real, but my hope is that you'll learn something and that I'll help you be equipped to persevere in suffering. I don't know if you, for those of you who haven't met me, I'm from the States. I grew up in Grants Pass, Oregon, and one of my, come on, baby, come on, and one of my favorite things to do was go to the park and play pickup basketball, and unlike Canada, which apparently no one plays basketball here, unless the Toronto Raptors are playing, uh, I I would go, and they would, guaranteed, At least four or five guys and we would always have three on three four on four five on five full court and we would play and it was often the same group of guys and we were all kind of about the same skill level so the game was fun there was one guy who i will call jimmy and jimmy was really frustrating to play with because he he was the kind of guy that told you what to do and you can nod your head with me if you know that kind of person who who tells you what to do when you're playing a sport with them or you're doing a school assignment with them and then what makes people like Jimmy really, really frustrating is they're often not very good at the thing they're telling you to do, right? And he had never really played basketball. So I had a guy who was not as good as I am, humble brag, and, and he was telling me, yo, Freddie, you need to make sure that, like, you go this way when I go this way, and I would look at him in his face, and I would say, look at me, man, I know what I'm doing, relax, and I would say it with a lot of grace because I was a Christian, and I still am, but... But what, make, what makes that so annoying? What makes it so annoying when someone tells you what to do over and over and over again when they don't, they don't really have the experience to back it up? It's, it's that reality that they, they just don't know. They're talking a lot and they're giving you a lot of theoretical knowledge and we don't really care. We don't really care about theoretical knowledge. We want experience. We want someone who's been there to tell me what it's like. If Steph Curry rolled up, I'd listen to him if he told me how to play basketball, but my buddy Jimmy, no thanks, he doesn't even know. He, he doesn't, he's not even a hooper. He doesn't know how to play ball. Well, what we're gonna read today comes from 1 Peter, written by Peter, as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And if there was anyone who knew a thing or two about suffering, if there was anyone who had been there, who had the experience to give us a word, to give us the, the kind of information that we need to persevere in our own trials, it would be this guy. If you were here last week, you would remember that, or sorry, two weeks ago, Daniel preached out of John 20, story of doubting Thomas. And he did a wonderful job of showing that Thomas wasn't unique. He wasn't the only dude who doubted. Every disciple doubted. But Thomas ended, his story ended on a high note because he, he acknowledged the deity of Jesus. He said, my Lord and my God. And he pronounced his faith in Jesus. Peter had also seen him earlier in that chapter, and If we turn to John 21, 15 to 19, we read these words that Jesus gives him. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said it to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. And when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you, want, where you do not want to go. This he said to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter, talking to Jesus, had received a, a prophetic utterance. Jesus had told him he had reconciled with him, he had restored him after Peter fell away, after Peter denied him three times. But then the story takes kind of a turn that Peter wasn't too excited about. Jesus tells him, well, Peter, you're, you are following me, what that's going to mean, what your profession of faith is going to mean is that you're, you're going to suffer. And you're going to suffer so much that one day you will die on a cross. And our Christian tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. That was the life that awaited this man. If we look at the rest of his story, we see more and more suffering. So if there's someone who has something to say, who's been there, who knows what it's like, and can give us an encouragement in suffering, it would be Peter. We're gonna learn. Th- we're gonna learn three things tonight. We're gonna to learn that we rejoice in the resurrection, we rejoice in the trials, and we rejoice in the glory. Suffering is a part of life, but the reality of the resurrection of Jesus enables us to rejoice. So the first thing, rejoice in the resurrection. First Peter one three through five reads, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy." He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God has caused us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The means of salvation is given to us in this passage, the physical resurrection of Jesus. Peter starts his conversation on suffering, his letter to the church, to the churches in Asia who are experiencing suffering, the first thing he says after his greeting is he grounds it in the resurrection of Jesus. See, this resurrection of Jesus is the good news. Our faith is founded on the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Death and decay no longer rule over us. And if you are alive today, you would know that, well, that's partially true right? Death and decay are unfortunately still a part of our reality, but something has changed. My friend Colin, he's one of the interns that, that serves in community with me, and he he's a very particular dude, which I appreciate because I myself am also a particular dude, and he found the perfect pair of shoes. He's a dude, which makes this even more fun. He found the perfect pair of shoes that they didn't have a lot of branding on them, and they were leather, and they had the perfect kind of laces, so they didn't untangle. And he loved them. He found them at Aldo for thirty bucks, and he was ec- ecstatic. But then I was talking to him this summer, and he was he was lamenting, and he was like, "Dude, I am so choked. I have to buy new shoes." And I was like, oh, "Yeah, man, I've I've been there. It's not a big deal." And he said, "No, no, no. but You don't understand. These shoes were the perfect shoes." and and they've wasted away. I wore them for two years, and, and they, they served me well, but, but they're gone, and I said, ah, Colin, this is, this is the result of the fall. Everything decays, amen, and, and he said, why are you like that? Why are you like that? Right, because it's annoying, right? I, I can also relate to this frustration of being kind of between two times, I had a compressed disc in my back a couple years ago, and I sometimes pray, Lord, give me a new disc between L5 and S1, and if if you know any kind of anatomy, that's somewhere, I won't turn, because it would be a little weird, but the point I'm trying to make is is the reality of decay and death in this life is, is never too far away, but Peter starts with the reality of the resurrection. That's the very first thing he talks about. Our bodies ache, life is tough, But Jesus defeated death and decay. That's why Peter can go on to say, well, you have an inheritance, and you have this inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. Jesus did this. How did Jesus do this? Through his physical, bodily resurrection. In John 14, Jesus promises the disciples, they're, they're concerned. Jesus is about to leave them. They don't know that he's gonna resurrect. They just know that he keeps talking about dying. And they're concerned. And Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me, believe, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. See, what, what John is, is saying to us in this passage is that Jesus had promised them, I I'm gonna go, I'm gonna die, but I'm gonna resurrect and I'm gonna do something. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Peter's talking about the same thing. There is something in the future, something coming that makes all of this worth it. This is what is often called the already not yet tension. And those are, it's just a simple way of us describing the, the reality of Christian life. See, in Christian life, we know that Jesus resurrected from the dead. We know that that tomb is empty. We sing about it every single Easter because death and sin no longer have power over us. That's, that's fact. That's true. But we also know that our loved ones do, in fact, pass away. We do know that people's backs hurt, and we want new discs. That's, that's real life. We have this already, Jesus already resurrected, already defeated sin and death, but this not yet. But I'm, I don't yet have This future life that Jesus promised, this place He went to prepare, this inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, being kept for me. We're stuck between two times, and that gap is really, really hard sometimes. Salvation has been secured, but it's not yet realized. A couple years ago, I went on a community group family trip. And we went to Mexico to an all-inclusive. And there should be some pictures. First one of me being a super babe. That's right. That's right. I got my tan on. And you know I need it because I'm not very dark. Next picture. And I went with a bunch of people from my community group. And we had a wonderful time. We went for an all-inclusive in Mexico. And I served as a translator for obvious reasons. I'll let you figure that out on your own after. You see, we bought our tickets for this trip in February, three months out. Three months out, and if you have been in the lower mainland for longer than like a day, you know what February is like around here, where the sun disappears and you curse the the world because there's no light, and there's only darkness, and there's only rain, and it's misery, and you think to yourself, why, oh Lord, have you forsaken me? That's what it's like around here. But I had my tickets. I had my tickets in my hand, and I would look at them, And I would say, man, in three months, I know where I'm going. I know where I'm going. Let me tell you something. And that rainy weather, it didn't seem so bad when I knew where I was going. It didn't seem so bad when I knew that in three short months, I was going to be on a beach with a cup with lots of Pepsi and ice and nothing else. So help me God, right? This vacation was secured for me the moment I bought the ticket. The moment I bought my ticket, I knew that it was mine, but I did not have it yet. There was this gap between the moment where it was mine and the moment I arrived on the beach. That's our lives. That's our lives in this world. Jesus Christ, with his resurrection, secured our salvation, this inheritance, imperishable, unfading, being kept in heaven for you and for me. But there's this gap, and that gap, sometimes it's a lot worse in a rainy February, and you know that. You don't need me to tell you that. You know that. The The resurrection of Jesus is the proof we need to know that God has an inheritance secured for us. So rejoice in that resurrection. If you're an unbeliever and you're sitting here, our faith is grounded in a historically verifiable fact. Craig Blomberg puts it this way. Jesus was a Jew who lived during the first third of the first century, was born out of wedlock, intersected with the life and ministry of John the Baptist, attracted great crowds, especially because of his wondrous deeds, had a group of particularly close followers called disciples, five of whom are named, ran afoul of Jewish authorities because of his controversial teachings, sometimes deemed heretical or blasphemous, was crucified during the time of Pontius Pilate's governorship in Judea, and yet was believed by many of his followers to have been the messiah, the anticipated liberator of Israel. This belief did not disappear despite Jesus' death because a number of his supporters claimed to have seen him resurrected from the dead. His followers therefore continued consistently to grow in numbers, gathering for regular worship and instruction and even singing hymns to him as if he were a god or god himself. See what Craig is saying is that all these things. You don't need a Bible to find these things out. You just read a history book. Our faith, the Christian faith, is grounded in a historically verifiable fact. The Bible itself wants you to think of it in such a way. Consistently, the Bible speaks of the eyewitnesses. Peter is listed in 1 Corinthians 15 as an eyewitness. Then the disciples in the sermon you heard two weeks ago from John 20. And then Paul also includes 500 witnesses in 1 Corinthians 15, 6. And then he tells you this, many of whom are still alive today. The Christian faith is inviting you to look into it. We've been around for 2,000 years. And then 2,000 years before that, with the Jewish faith, ask your questions. There are answers there to be found. The entire New Testament was written so that you would believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior of everyone who would believe. John makes this explicit. Now Jesus did many other signs in John 20, 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Rejoice in the resurrection that is the foundation of our faith. Second, rejoice in the trials. In 1 Peter 1, 6 to 9, we read, and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The phrase I want to focus on is grieved by various trials. The Christians that, that Peter is writing to were experiencing persecution. And it wasn't the kind of persecution that Christians in China are experiencing. It hadn't gotten to that point yet, but Peter knew the way things are going, things are not looking good. What they were experiencing is very similar to what our Christian brothers and sisters are experiencing in places like Alabama where they're being roasted on social media. They didn't have Twitter back then, thank God. But if they did, the kind of things that they would have received would have been that, put downs, people making them feel stupid, people going out of their way to shun them in any available, at any available opportunity in the marketplace, in conversation, wherever they lived. Every chance they got, people were... Going after these Christians, these people who denied the existence of the gods, claiming there had only been one and that he was a man and that he was resurrected, people hated what they were saying. People hated their preaching, and they're going after them over and over and over again. And, and these, these people are experiencing trials, trials, trials. And Peter knows that they're going to be aggrieved. Who wouldn't be? Who doesn't want to, to be liked? Everyone wants to be liked. These Christians are getting hammered. People are going after them over and over. But sometimes you got to go through the junk to be ready for the glory. I mentioned already that I'm a basketball fan, and my favorite team is the San Antonio Spurs, who are no longer in the playoffs, and I'm pretty, pretty sore about it. But life goes on, right? Suffering. But the point I'm trying to make is that the Spurs, the last time they won a championship was in 2014. But to get to that point... They had to lose one in 2013. And I remember reading an article where they already had the, they had the T-shirts printed because they assumed that they were going to win, and they had loaded the confetti guns, and everyone was ready. The, all the wives had come down from the stands, and everyone's getting ready because they had a, a six-point lead with 30 seconds to go. It's basically a done deal. They just needed a free throw, and they missed one. And then the Heat hit a shot, and then they missed their next shot and then Ray Allen hits a corner three, and it goes to overtime, and they lose, and they lose the next game. And several of the Spurs players said, man, I thought about retirement. I was like, what's the point? This game is cruel, and it's, it's brutal. I worked so hard just to be disappointed. But they came back the next year, they came back the next year and crushed the same team that had beaten them. And so many of the players said, man, you know what? It was so hard to go through that, but man, I would do it again because the suffering that I experienced in getting my heart broken gave me the motivation I needed to keep pushing on and prepare me for that team that, that ran the table in 2014. See, that, that experience, that, that momentary affliction, that trial prepared them for that future glory. You know, suffering is a part of life. There's just no way around it, and you know that. You don't need me to tell you. If, if it was up to you, you would change at least one thing in your life right now. If Aladdin was real and you could rub that genie bottle, you would absolutely change something if you could. Right? I would make myself 6'4". Why not? Right? <laughs> but that we, And that's a little one, right? But we all have other things that absolutely we would change. A broken relationship. A physical ailment. The loss of someone we love. We would absolutely change the sufferings that we experience But the reality is that it's inescapable. It's inescapable. And we think, what is the point of all of this? What is the point? Well, Peter tells us this this suffering, you're grieved for a little while, and it's producing a genuine faith that is more precious than gold. You see, what hardship does, what suffering does, is it reveals what's in here. It reveals what you believe about God and what you believe about the world. It reveals your heart condition when I first met my wife, Rebecca, I, to make a good impression, I wanted to be biblical. So I went and I worked for her father for four long months, and I, I pretended like it was seven years because I was trying to earn her <laughs> hand in marriage. And what I did is I went and I told this man, listen, I haven't done much. I only worked in a grocery store before that, but I'm Mexican and I got a great work ethic. And he bought it, he totally bought it. And it's it's true, I do in fact have a good work ethic, another humble brag. And what what I did is I went to him and I said, I I need a job, I'm going to Bible school in the fall and I just need to make some income so that I can pursue my, my dream of being a pastor. And he loved the sound of that, so he said, I'll give you a job. And my very first day, he needed a trailer pulled. And he said, have you ever pulled a trailer? And I told him, no, but I'm ready to do it today. And he said, I love that attitude, that's gonna carry you far. So he gave me the keys. And I jumped in the biggest truck I'd ever driven, pulling the longest trailer I'd ever seen. And he told me, the only thing you need to know is that just take turns really, really wide. You can never go too wide. And I said, okay, that makes sense. So I jumped in the truck. I backed out, trying to make sure I didn't jackknife. And then I, I took off. And I said to myself, Freddie, if there's one thing you're going to do today, it's you're going to turn really, really wide. But I needed to go. His office was, was along kind of a main street, and then behind it were houses. So it was kind of through a residential area to get to the, main, the other main road, leaving the little town. So there, were, there was a, a little trap that I did not foresee coming. And I, I took my first corner and I took it wide. And then I took my second corner and I took it wide. But that third corner, I, I thought I took it wide, but I felt a huge bump. Just, and I just kept going. And about, why would I stop? Why would I stop? My, the trailer was still attached. The load was secured. So I just kept driving, and then I get a phone call about five, ten minutes later, and he said, hey, did you hit anything on the way out? And I told him, no, sir, that trailer's still attached, and I'm, I'm going to where you said I was going. And he said, well, there's a fire hydrant in the middle of the road. Would you happen to know anything about that? And I said, no, those things are bright red. I'll, I would know if I hit it, which was a lie, because I, in fact, had hit it, but I hit that fire hydrant super hard. Right? I blew it right off, it's standing. The water had been turned off, so thank God it didn't rain. But, but what that fire hydrant did right, is it tested the integrity of the ratchet straps that I'd had to secure my load. That load was already on the trailer and I was just going my way. But when I hit that thing, I, that was the moment I found out if those straps were in fact good. Right? You're supposed to test them, which I didn't know at the time. Right? But that trial it tested those straps. My load stayed on the trailer. So it did what it was intended to do. You see, Peter is giving us a hard word here. He's giving us a hard word. He's telling us, you know, hardship, it shows the condition of your heart. Just like that fire hydrant showed the condition of those straps by testing them. That's what hardship does in our life. It tests It tests our, our hearts. It tests the condition of what, what we're like. What do we really believe about God? What do we really believe about the world? Because when you hit a fire hydrant, there is no way around it that it's real life. That's, that's what's happening. But then Peter gives us this word. He says, that, though you have not seen him, you love him. So he's telling us this, this, genu- this suffering is producing a genuine faith that is more precious than gold. And you're like, well, of course it is, right? Because these people saw Jesus. And then he goes on to say, though you have not seen him, you love him. Peter's writing to people who never saw Jesus. These are second, third generation Christians, people who believe the gospel after missionaries preached it to them. People like you and me, people who have never seen the resurrected Jesus, but who believe the gospel when missionaries preached it to us, when parents preached it to us, when people from pulpits preached it, to us, though we have not seen him, you love him. This suffering is real and it remains. But what, what makes it what makes it extra bad is that is that sometimes we feel alone. But Peter gives us this word. He says, "You haven't seen him, but you love him." Andy Steiger often reminds us that he, he works for Apologetics Canada. He's a director of that organization. It's a, it's his humble flex. Right, But what makes it so helpful, what makes it so, so helpful, is every chance Andy gets, he reminds us, we have a reasonable faith, and then he defines it. Faith isn't closing your eyes and saying, I know God's out there. As Andy puts it, faith is trusting what you have good reason to believe. I'd like to humbly submit a second definition. Not as good as Andy's, but functional. (laughs) Faith is taking God at his word. Faith is taking God at his word. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Why would you love someone you have not seen? Because of the things that they have told you about themselves. In in Exodus 33, right after the golden calf incident, Israel's proven themselves to be unfaithful. And if you know the Old Testament story, they will do it over and over and over again. And Moses is interceding before the Lord, and he tells him, Lord, we, we need you to be with us, and you need to... Forgive these people. Please, please, please. And this is how God responds to him. He says in Exodus 33, 14 to 17, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, and Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you. have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. What God is telling him is, I know you, I love you, and I will be with you. He's telling this to a man who leads a sinful people. He's telling this to a man who will reject God's word and will be cast out from the promised land. God makes this lofty of a promise to a man who he knows will let him down. And God makes the same kind of promise to you and me. So if you are a believer here, the reason that we rejoice in the trials is because we're never alone. Never once have we ever been alone in our trials. In Hebrews 13, five to six, we read, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. The Lord will never leave you. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have trusted him as your Lord and Savior, the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. But you're looking at me and you're saying, that's a nice word, man. But you know what? I am still incredibly lonely. I have not been able to connect with any of my friends after high school. Half of them abandoned the faith and the ones who did not moved away. And I'm here in a group of 200 people and I still feel alone. Yeah, God's with me but I still feel alone. Or you're sitting there and you're saying, you know what, Freddie, it's easy for you to say that because you're up there and I'm down here. And you know what? My, my life hasn't been going the way I want it to be. You see, I, I'm, I'm struggling with, with mental illness and I can't seem to find light at the end of the tunnel. And I show up to all the things and I do all the Christian things I'm supposed to do and it doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. How can you tell me that I'm not alone when I feel so alone? Or even more, real. You look at me and you say, man, I have a friend who just got in a car accident. And I don't know if they're going to make it. And we just got out of one of these experiences. And you're telling me that God said he will never leave me or forsake me, but it really doesn't feel that way. I really don't feel like God is with me in these moments. What makes suffering so unbearable is that we just feel so alone. In the midst of it. When I first got married, I didn't know that my wife was a light sleeper, and I'm, I'm a morning person, so I would often get up early at like 5.30 or 6, and I'd wake up, I'd go to the bathroom, and then I wouldn't want to come back to bed because I didn't want to wake her. And a couple times, my wife would, would wake up, and she would kind of get like night terrors where she would, she'd feel, and the bed was empty, and we'd been married two weeks, and she said to herself, my, my husband's gone. I I what is what's happening and and one time she, she had a nightmare that that I had been I died while she was asleep and now it was happening and, and this was real life and I would I hear Freddie 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 just panicked 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 and I would go back and I'd go back and I'd jump back in bed and I'd hold her hand and it would take some time for her to go from here panicked to here I'm gonna be okay but what made it a little bit more bearable was being able to hold my hand, was, was knowing that I'm, I'm not alone. I'm not alone right now. I'm, I feel alone, but, but I'm not. I'm not alone. Christian, God is for you, not against you. In the midst of our trials, we're never alone. God has given us people. God has given us people in the faith, people in our families, to remind you that the same way that that person is here, God is here. God is the one who has promised. I will never leave you nor forsake you. This, This suffering, these trials that we go through, they show what our hearts are like. They show what we believe about God and about the world. But more importantly, they give us an opportunity to face this fact that we are never alone. And just like those ratchet straps when I hit the fire hydrant, the only way to test that is by hitting something. And we don't want to hit anything. We don't really sign up for it. But the reality is that you gotta take your licks. You gotta take your licks, and in those moments, you can rejoice in the trials because it is an opportunity to remember and to experience that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We rejoice in the resurrection, we rejoice in the trials, and lastly, we rejoice in the glory. In 1 Peter 1:10 1, to 12, we read concerning this salvation, this inheritance that's kept for you in heaven, and this reality that, is, that is, is being kept. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven Things into which the angels long to look. There's lots that we could talk about there, but I want to focus on one thing. We rejoice in future glory. You see, the prophets predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. You know, sometimes for us it's so easy to focus on just the, the death of Jesus. We say he was crucified for our sins, and that's that's a fact. That's real life, that's true. But he did resurrect, he was ascended into heaven. The prophets predicted both the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. Jesus defeated sin and death, but he also went into his glory. In Hebrews 5, 7 to 10, we read, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. He suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. What the writer of Hebrews is telling us is God could have spared him, but he sent him into this suffering. He sent him into the cross. He sent him onto the Mount of Olives where Jesus cried and it felt like blood because he knew that something bad was coming and he knew that he was gonna suffer real whips and real sadness as his, all his disciples, even Peter who told him, I will never leave you. Though they all walk away, I will never leave you, Lord. And every single one walked away. Jesus experienced all of those things. Jesus experienced the suffering, but he also experienced the glory <coughs> There are no, no shortcuts on the road to glory. The road to glory for Jesus went through the Mount of Olives. It went through the cross. It went through suffering. And the same is true for us. For this reason, we read in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, the saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. What Paul is saying here is as we face these sufferings, these sufferings on the road to glory, we need to endure. There are no shortcuts. We have our ticket punched to that vacation at the all-inclusive in Mexico, but it's still February and it's still raining and we just need to survive those three months. We just need to make it to the end. These trials, though, they lead to something better. The trials... Are worth rejoicing in because they lead to a future glory that is worth more rejoicing in. I'm not a fan of hiking because I think it's stupid. You work out for nothing. There's no you can't even win, right? You just go and get a view, which I can get by Google images. So I don't I don't understand why I have to do it. But the point, some people, some people love hiking. And they tell you, man, man, the reason it's worth it is you just go up like vertical inclines like this man and, and like and you almost wish you could fly because it would make it a little bit easier and I don't know why I do it but actually I do know why I do it because when I get to the top you look around and the view is so worth it. And I'm like it, it is not it is not worth it. But but for that person, that person who sees that, they say to themselves, man that hike is totally worth it because I know what's at the end. When you know the thing that's at the end it makes the suffering in the middle so so worth it. What makes the grind, what makes those trials bearable is that future glory is awaiting. If you're a believer, there is no such thing as purposeless suffering. There is no such thing as purposeless suffering. That's suffering in your life that you would absolutely change if you could. And you pray for it, and you should pray for it. It is the trials It is the sufferings on the road to future glory. The world wants to tell you that suffering is terrible and it's meaningless, and it's a classic half-truth because suffering is terrible. None of us want it. We don't see the point of it. But what the world doesn't understand is it is not meaningless. It is doing something in your life. It is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, where he says, the light momentary afflictions are producing in you an eternal weight of glory that is to be revealed. John Piper puts it this way. Not only is your affliction, not only is your affliction light, light in comparison to what? In comparison to eternity and the glory there, but all of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your pain from fallen nature or fallen man, every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience is producing a peculiar glory that you will get because of that. I don't care if it was cancer or criticism, I don't care if it was slander or sickness, it was not meaningless. It's doing something. Of course you can't see it. Of course you can't see what it's doing. Do you do not look to what is seen? When your mom dies, when your kid dies, when you got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes you out, don't say it's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you on eternal weight of glory. Therefore, therefore, do not lose heart, but take these truths and day by day focus on them, preaching them to yourself. Don't believe the lie. That the suffering in your life has no purpose. We do not always understand. But the suffering in our life is doing something. It's doing something. The reason we can rejoice in the trials is because these light, momentary afflictions are producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Suffering is a part of life, but the reality of the resurrection of Jesus enables us to rejoice. Suffering is not the end of your story. Don't buy the lie. Don't buy the lie that it is. Future glory awaits. And I leave you with these words of Jesus. In this world, you'll have many trials, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Bow your heads with me. Father God, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for one more day of life. I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach your word before these people. Lord, suffering is a hard thing, It's a hard thing because it's a real experience. It's a real thing that we suffer through and we struggle with and we don't know why it's happening or what's going on. But Father, help us. Help us in our trials. Remind us that we can rejoice in all of these things because they're producing an eternal weight of glory. Lord, anything I said that was not of you or that was confusing, Lord, would it blow away like chaff? But the things that were from you, Father, by your spirit, I ask you to take it and plant it in the hearts of all the people who are here that they would believe that the sufferings in their life are doing something and that they would be able to persevere. In Jesus' name, amen.